You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Yes, it's another fabulous Solidarity Breakfast day. And wasn't it a beautiful sunrise? Yes, as it, well? was. Oh, it was. It was magical. I was just sitting out the front of the, the station and, yeah, just seeing it rise up was... Oh. Beautiful. This is the bonus, one of the bonuses of getting up early on a Saturday morning. Yep. (laughs) Hopefully you're all prepared for an action-packed program today. Mm. Uh, You've been, uh, lots of things have been happening. Before we get on to the program, lots of things have been happening. Uh, Give me your reflection on the Facebook uh, carry on. Oh, God. So I have no social media. I've never had a Facebook account, um, which is very rare um, because... Full disclosure, I'm 24, and I first remember Facebook coming pretty much through my school when I was 10, or thereabouts, maybe a bit earlier. And I just remember thinking at the time, ah, all of my friends don't actually use this. Why would I need to have an account? And then, you know, that turned into Twitter, and um, then, you know, social media began to diversify, and it suddenly started to enter the mainstream. But by the time it did... I was conscious enough that it was commercial. And when the lockout happened, in full disclosure, I laughed at the top of my lungs and my flatmate got unfortunately woken up by it because obviously it doesn't affect me. And I imagine it won't most affect, won't affect most listeners for 3CR because, you know, we have alternative non-commercial forms of news. Um, and that, oh, in, in actual yes. fact, you just have to work a little bit harder to get that news. Too. Yes, absolutely. There are other, other outlets as well. Yeah, yeah. And look, it's it's disappointing that this has happened in the first place, but it's it's a consequence of what happens when news is commercialized because ultimately Facebook is a commercial entity. They can do with it what they like, right? That's part of the T&C. As grim as that is, that, that is how it works. Um, but it was fascinating that it was in response to just the tiniest little levy proposal overall, right? Um, you know, if the big four can get away with, you know, 0.5 of a levy coming out of the Banking Royal Commission, then an even smaller amount for, you know, one or two, maybe three large corporations, well, it it actually shows that there is a lot more of this alternative news being consumed than traditional forms of media, like newspapers, like cable TV, as it's called in the US, but, um, you know, common TV news, mainstream news. And consequent to that, because that media landscape is shifting, um, obviously the the government has some vested interests whispering in its ear saying, you know, we, we, we may need the playing field rejigged a little bit here. 
And the government's turned around and said, well, we're going to propose a small levy for all of the, the news content because you're, you're now a player well, in the know, market. Actually, that's really fascinating too, considering they yeah. couldn't levy the uh, mining interests. No, of course not, right? And so, and oh, it, it's just such a... Can of worms. Yeah. But I think Facebook has absolutely full, I, I, I don't like saying this, but they have full leisure to some extent to completely shut down the Australian engagement with media um, because Australia is not a big market, right? Even just on population alone, you look at India or you look at most of the Eurozone or Africa as well. All of, all of these have their own, you know, way less educated um, markets as well. Um, out in Brazil, too, Facebook doesn't give two hoots about Australia in the broadest sense. And that's to our detriment, but also, you know, that that's kind of up to them to some extent. Well, that's how business operates. Yeah. But uh, quite clearly, there are other things afoot uh, that... Um the whole notion that uh, a monopoly interest, which is what capitalism likes to do, you know, uh, uh, co- competition is anathema to the power interests of mm. capitalism. Uh, so it's really just a uh, publicity stunt when they talk about uh, establishing competition. Maybe this is uh, one of the uh, areas of uh, uh, battle that uh, yeah. the... Um, the uh, titans of capitalism, we're going to see them cut each other's ears off or something. Yeah, I, I, think it was, I think it was most surreal when you had Liberal Party politicians go into the House of Reps and say, word for word, we're putting people before profit. And I just thought... That's hilarious. <laughs> Did you fall off your chair? Did you fall off your chair? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's do you think surreal. there might be something else behind oh, this? Yeah, and, and, and <laughs> Josh, uh, explicitly Josh Frydenberg, had a Joshy. field day with all of this, you know, because he, was, he had the angle of the tax front with it. And was like, look, these are tough times. We we have oh, to yeah. we reclaim our interests, yeah. and oh my god, turn themselves <laughs> into knots. Now that's really interesting. Yeah. This leads on to an article that came out today, which is you know in in a mainstream rag, which is uh, not uh, you know uh, flying a flag for uh, progressive uh, behaviours really, but uh, <laughs> apparently the watchdog in charge of keeping the government accountable for use of taxpayer money says. His budget has fallen so much, some agencies might only face scrutiny once every 20 years. And auditors are tolerating uncomfortable risks in financial statements. That's Auditor General Grant Hillier. Now, isn't Hiller, his name is Hiller, um, which is fascinating because uh, on one hand, they're fighting for the people. On the other hand... It's so once every 20 years. Once in, when, <laughs> we once, can only do it so much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they, they've got a hard job to do. Yep, yep. We have yeah. to keep corporations and, and, you know, government interests accountable. Uh, but, you know, we, we've, we've got a tight schedule. We've yeah, got yeah. A, we can only do it once every, you know, generation. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> um, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Jordan. And uh, we've just got to remind you that this we're right in the middle of uh, 3CR subscribe. Drive. Become a member. 
Don't uh, don't be a slacker. Uh, Thirty five for uh, unwaged, uh, seventy five for waged, and one hundred and fifty solidarity or uh, band or uh, organisation. Organisation, in particular, yeah. And just on that as well, um, I'm I'm personally I've got you know an unwaged subscription because um, at the time I was unwaged. Um, but uh, if you're if you are an organisation, do consider pitching in for that hundred and fifty. Um, as you know, if if you are a band or you have some music that you want to share with three CR in particular, um, I've been finding that there is a lot of good success through the extensive music and arts programming that we have at three CR. You know, you don't just have to become a subscriber for the programs that you love. Everything that you pitch in can help what you do. So if you deeply care about campaigning or about creating or even just have, you know, a a modicum of a sense of social justice, I'm sure that you can find value in the work that 3CR does. Um, unfortunately, value right now is being, in, in, you know, in a capitalist Once society, is pegged to money. So, so be it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jacob from a Friday Rave, and I'm also on 3CR's Committee of Management. Now, the community of passionate people that founded 3CR a long time ago made some tough decisions. For a start, they committed themselves and a growing community of listeners to back their vision of owning our station and, in doing so, remaining independent of the government and corporate influence. They did this by fundraising, brick by brick, with working bees, door knocks on-air drives and all the rest of it. You've all been there. Now, their commitment has kept 3CR on air for over 40 years. That's a long time even in my life. But now we need your commitment to keep this great thing going. Now, you can subscribe online at 3cr.org.au or phone us at the station on 94198377 or even stop me on the bloody street if you see me at some rally or other and ask me for a membership form. You need to become a member of Melbourne Radical Radio and subscribe. This is Solidarity Breakfast. Um, and just before we get into our next well piece, um, one thing that did come to my attention this morning is um, uh, Telstra has recommenced its drive to eliminate 8,000 jobs by uh, June 30. And um, it, it suddenly informed um, in the realm of about 1,400 of its workers at the beginning of January that they're being retrenched. Um, I first heard about this because uh, one of my family members did have a connection with Telstra, and um, that was forwarded on through me. Um, it's... So, so w- at what level are we now? They've pruned all their middle managers. Yep. They've outsourced to India. Yep. Uh, their call centres and their yes. technical staff yep. uh, to a large degree. So what? Where's is the 8,000 going to be in their shops? Or so, so this is part of something that they've called the T22 plan, which essentially is their you know, long-term, uh, long-term policy that they're trying to look at. So give it a, um, give it a letter it in, and a number and dehumanise it to such a degree that it sounds uh, yeah, modern. Of course. Yep, okay. Yeah. Um, it's... The program is generally just a cost-cutting program, and yeah, yeah. the the level of costs that were going to be achieved were in the realm of one billion dollars. Um, it's primarily through job cuts and splitting off old infrastructure assets, um, and selling them off. Yeah, pretty much. Um, it's just continued 
privatization. Um, the restructuring was temporarily halted, though, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, now, Andy Penn has uh, claimed that the decision to suspend sackings was, quote, a public-spirited effort. Um, that's that's bull, sorry, but what, that, what it's even? motivated purely by commercial interests, right? No genuine cost-cutting measure would come outside of sheer privatization. Um, yeah, it... The the notice of this went out in an email, and with 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 this round of sackings, it's it's essentially said that you know so we've who, achieved ninety percent of the sackings that we're going to achieve, and that there's another eight hundred coming in future. Which you know eight hundred or eight thousand eight hundred eight hundred um, by the end of financial year. Mm. So you know that that that's you're going to be in the realm of two thousand two hundred now. Yes. By the end of June, and so, so that's across across Australia. Yep, and yep. it's going to be through uh, a pairing off, a cutting off various elements of their business structure. Yep, yeah. um, mm. it, it it did have a sharp decline in half year earnings, but at the same time, it comes off of a sixteen cent shareholder division, which was announced for a February eleven financial report. It just it it's not good practice. It's unfortunate that this is happening, obviously, but I think there's something else at play here. And I certainly don't blame uh, the CEPU and the Communication Workers Union, uh, which cover the Telstra staff, for wanting to keep a close eye on this story. So that's been something that's on my radar, and I'm going to keep a little close eye on it. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you went off today, uh, this week and uh, gathered up some information about the Community Defence Yeah, the Community League. Union Defence League. Um, you probably heard some of their stings that we've been doing on 3CR for a little while now. Um, they are a community kitchen. But interestingly, compared to a couple of other uh, charity services or similar kitchens, they had some connections with the Australian Communist Party. And this kind of created a couple of interesting discussions because of the nature of it. Um, that being said, I think what was more fascinating was that it was day two of that snap lockdown that we had. And as a result, it was a little bit of an interesting day. So I'm currently in Melbourne Central, just coming up on about 3 p.m. here in the CBD move outside to the State Library in a moment and chat with the CUDL and find out what it's all about. The street kitchen was a simple, unassuming operation. A few gazebos and some white, plasticky fold-out tables under the warm oaks of the State Library. One flag was raised for the Australian Communist Party one flag for Indigenous Australia, and two banners showcasing the Community Union Defence League, or CUDDLE for short. Care had obviously been taken to make sure that the sidewalk was not obstructed. About six volunteers were unpacking a variety of food, and it was really extensive. Ravioli, rice, beans, vegetables, casseroles, pastry, coffee, cordial, and more slowly started to trickle onto those tables. It was a really extensive array of food, and even though it was just after 3pm, a substantial dinner queue had already formed. My first chat was with Sleek, who was coordinating a lot on the ground. 
talking with volunteers, recipients, occasionally responding to a call out of the blue on his phone. Given that Cuddle was run by the ACP, it'd be a bit ironic if I described him as entrepreneurial. I started by asking him if he had seen any changes in people coming forward for aid due to the snap lockdown. Yeah, yeah, like, um, there is normally, in general, when we do have, like, lockdowns like this, there is, um, less people coming through, and that's because one of either two reasons, um, they're either unwilling to come out, um, because there were people who were coming during the last lockdown, while we were still running, um, that were getting fines. Either on their way here, there was an incident as well where somebody got a fine at the street kitchen itself. Um, so there is, a, I guess, fear. We still have put out a, f a fair few meals, but it's a bit less than what we normally do. Um, we normally try and do, like, veggie and, like, you know, vegan and non-vegan options as well. But, yeah, they're all home-cooked meals. Basically, we've got, like, a spag bowl as well. Yeah. Well, are you going to leave cool. the potato yeah. just Well, something that was um, that's happening today uh, that would happen uh, normally anyway, and that happened at the last lockdown, is uh, we'll see organisations and, you know, charitable sort of corporations, as we call them, like the Salvos, Vinnies and all that, every time there's a snap lockdown on, they shut. That's where, you know, because they get a bulk of the government funding, you know, a lot of people can't be helped because of that. Last lockdown, when it was long term, like today, this one's only a five-day one, but when it was a sort of indefinite one, we saw quite a lot of donations and stuff, specifically around clothes being diverted towards us. Um, specifically because they were shut um, and a lot of people were left really out in the cold quite literally in terms of getting services because and, and getting help in general like there was specifically around clothes because that is normally the go-to for people to drop it off at a bin or a place you know what I mean yeah we ended up getting you know like on social media mainly people being like I don't know where to drop off my clothes anymore I've got a whole bag of clothes for you know the needy or whatever um, and we don't know where to take them and that's where we put our hands up to say we're yeah we're still open you can drop it off at this or that location during the last lockdown we did see not only with clothes but other things with a lot of people being made you know unemployed saying all right well in this time of you know uh, need there's COVID happening uh, how can I help out a lot of that again was being diverted towards us when they were like that were inquiring with Vinnies and Salvos and whatever and being turned down at this point, I asked Sleek if he had seen any differences between the kitchen in the CBD and the kitchen in the southeastern suburbs of Dandenong. A main difference would be that most of the people that come to the Dandenong one are local, whereas this one here in the State Library, we do get people travelling in from other locations and suburbs. But the one in Dandenong is more, you know, the, the people who access the service um, are from the local area, you know, nine times out of ten. In terms of the output of meals and services that we provide, there really isn't much difference, um, which is, I think, glaring to say that program that's in the city, which is getting people from other areas and everything else coming, still isn't doing more in a place like Dandenong, where you would think that in Dandenong there would be less, but there isn't. In point, you know, yeah, COVID really has done what, a, what you know, the ruling class, so, so to speak, has... How do I say it? So... In terms of a working class movement or in terms of the working class and their power, what we've seen is that it's a sort of accidental you know, mass strike you know, with a lot of people being made unemployed, as I said earlier, and the current you know, public infrastructure not being able, especially around health, hasn't been able to really deal with the amount of people that have needed um, you know, 
health assistance, um, people being afraid to go to the GP, for example, um, in regards to you know catching COVID. So therefore, there's a greater need for home visits, um, which haven't really been resourced properly in quite a long time in favour of more private enterprise. You know, there isn't the public infrastructure to really you know service the people as the government should. Uh, we haven't seen really any proper investment in housing. You know, the in terms of the you know the homeless, for example, and the dealing with that. We've seen, we, we did a tent city here um, at the end of last year just to show that we had, you know, 13 people who were previously in hotels now back on the streets again. So I think in terms of COVID, it's really exaggerated um, the flaws, I guess, and contradictions of neoliberal economic planning. And we can see that clearly with, with COVID. Are you seeing any uptick in volunteers or anything of the sort? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Why do you um, think that is? There's a few reasons. I think I feel that Partly, again, you know, people have been made unemployed and now been able to volunteer their time, whereas before they couldn't. For me personally, it was the first time um, I've been unemployed for so long since the COVID pandemic. I'm a builder's labourer and I work in construction. And, yeah, I was sacked because of the, you know, the, of, of COVID happening because there wasn't work. And I ended up being able to devote much more of my time to organising and volunteering and all the rest of it. Sleek had a phone call to take, so I figured I'd go chat with someone else for a bit. I wandered around and decided to chat to one of the volunteers who was pensively looking over the clothing section. I'm Oliver, I'm a volunteer with uh, Cuddle. Yeah, I'd normally be expecting uh, well over 100 people by now, but as it is in the tens, uh, volunteers have been uh, deterred because they weren't entirely sure what the... Uh, what the requirements for uh, permits or essential work would be. It's been a bit chaotic. So, as you can see, we've got children's clothes and teenage boys' clothes. We're very, very limited. Like, we really do need... I mean, everyone's got the right to feel beautiful. Everyone's got the right to feel like they own nice things. I mean, you don't... You don't have to wear tattered, paint-stained clothing in, in Australia. We're, we're a wealthy country... We can afford to give more. We can, we, can, we, can afford, we can afford to make people feel comfortable. We can afford to... Uh, no. Sorry. Yeah. What do you mainly do for a living and how has it been affected? <laughs> I've been working at the casino. So I came uh, back so for a couple of weeks. So that would have been shut down completely. And yeah, now we'll be closed for uh, most of a week. Yep. yep. But honestly, I'm... I'm retraining at the moment in community services anyway, so right. it's all the same to me. What made you want to um, go into that kind of work? And I guess by extension, volunteer here. It, it really started over, over the first lockdown, just seeing how tough people were, were doing it. How, like, how just a small amount of kindness would bring so much, so much joy to people. Just, yeah, just realising how, how desperate it was for people like, living full-time on the streets. Oh, even in even in supported housing. I mean, shoot, government units like they'll, they'll put you in a unit, and you won't have any furniture or anything. You, you know, you won't have any real support to uh, to acquire clothing, appliances. It just really reawakened something within me. I'm absolutely terrified about what's going to happen when the moratorium on evictions is lifted. I mean, that's what March, April-ish, people are going to start getting kicked out of the hotels. So once once homelessness starts to really explode, then then we'll see. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast with me, Jordan, and my co-host Annie. 
This is a recording from when I travelled out to the CUDL kitchen in the CBD on the second day of Snap Lockdown. While Oliver was really great to chat to, he ended up introducing me to another one of the volunteers. Oliver described him as politically passionate. Yeah, so like, I think I found it on Facebook, because you know, when you're on Facebook with a bunch of lefties, they're just like sharing the shit out of it during um, COVID. Yeah, yeah, so a couple of months, they just like cook every week, come in and serve. It's like connected to the Australian Communist Party. Mm. So it's like, broadly, it's like a Stalinist group, but it has a mixture of different people. So there's anarchists, there's, I don't know, lots of different left-wing tendencies here. And it's a, it's a nice little environment, you know? It's like, this is like the nicest environment I've come to. There's such a diverse range of people. I think it, the best thing I found about Cuddle, and I think why I would suggest it to like anyone on the left in um, Melbourne, or just anyone in general, is, is because Unlike, like when you get into like being left-wing, um, there's not really a, a good positive space to be in. Like, um, if you go to protest, it's like very scary and anxiety-provoking and that sort of thing, and it can turn a lot of people away. Whereas if you come down to here, you're doing a positive thing, you feel like you're um, a part of something that's helpful to the world, and yeah, it's just a really great project. It's sort of uh, become less, comes less popular as, as the lockdown eased. Um, but during the lockdown, it's you know more more um, essential. So people are cooking more. You can see there's a lot more stuff. I mean, it doesn't vary that much, but I definitely notice it as someone who comes every week. Obviously, volunteering in the CBD, there's a lot of inflow and outflow of people, yeah. and socially distancing isn't always possible. Yeah. We're not always able to keep COVID safe. How much of that is on your mind in doing this sort of work? Um, you can be as honest as you like. Yeah, you, it. It, it, it leaves your mind pretty quickly. Today I'm, I'm a bit weary because I'm frightened about about the virulent strain that's going around. I don't know, like people need to be fair. Yeah, I, I just like being part of this, yeah. Mm. I think that, that takes up a lot of my thoughts actually, just the politics of what we're doing here. This wouldn't be possible if we were in a, like a registered charity. It's sort of in a, um, it's like a pseudo-legal pseudo space that is like, a product of the fact that the government is in a precarious political position where they can't... We, we like, can exist here because of the crazy right-wingers, like, being anti-lockdown. And so there's, like, crazy right-wingers who are, like, calling, like, oh, it's totalitarian. But if they shut down, like, a street kitchen like this, that would be, like, a real grievance. And then they, that would give them political ammunition against, I feel like, the Andrews government. So It's very interesting that you actually have that lens on it, the lens from the right wing. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. To some extent. It mirrors almost what's going on in the UK where um, conservatism is suddenly being linked to starving families um, over a lot of debacles with the free school meals incidents. Um, look, is there anything else that you wanted to add? Um, yeah, support 3CR. It's fucking sick. Yeah, go hard. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. One question was still rattling around in my head that hadn't really been answered. If a street kitchen could cause controversy, it would be from the unspoken knowledge that Cuddle is run by the Australian Communist Party. But most of the volunteers, and the people donating food, they weren't party members. Whatever presence the ACP had, they certainly weren't making it known. The only person I'd spoken to that was actually a member at this point was Sleek. So how connected is the ACP to Cuddle? 
Lockie presented himself in a hoodie as red as his politics. So, of course, I had to have a chat. Uh, hello, I'm Lockie, Lachlan McCracken, I guess. Um, I'm a member of the ACP and I helped start Cuddle about, it was a bit over a year ago. Currently, I'm the volunteer organiser, so I make sure everyone turns up. So, Dandenong is every Saturday and the city is every Sunday. Currently, I'm kind of doing all of it, but every second Saturday, someone else does Dandenong for me, so I'm getting a bit of a break now. So, originally, because we were new, it was hard to find volunteers. We relied on a lot of people from the party to come and like boost the numbers. During COVID, I guess, people had a lot of spare time. It was easy to get people to cook for us because they had like spare weekends. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because they had a bit of extra money. Especially myself, like I was happy to cook, buy toiletries, all that kind of thing. I had something to spend the extra money on. But then coming out of COVID, it dropped off a bit, especially with people cooking, which has been difficult. And so I've started filling in a lot more with the cooking. Towards the end of COVID, I didn't have to cook at all, but now, yeah, I do. We have heaps of volunteers now these days, especially like after COVID. I don't know if they were uncertain or if like, it's just like grown more. Because every person I speak to, like they've just seen it on Facebook. So in the beginning, it was people within like left politics. But now there's a lot of just random people that have seen it through friends of friends and that stuff. In the past, we'd had like one or two new volunteers each week. I think like two weeks ago, we had like six new volunteers. So it's, it's been good. But with this snap lockdown, it was kind of hard to get people here. You can see there's quite a few people here now. But uh, this guy was just walking past and saw what we were doing and decided to help today. So one theory that I had read was the more that people see and interact with poverty, the more likely they are to be uh, somewhat left-leaning or more socialist in some sense. Uh, or at the very least, they, they reject a capitalist framework. How do you see the growing trend in any kind of volunteerism? Is it connected to a broad sense of charity? Is it um, something else that's going on there? What do you think? So there's a few different aspects. Within the people we help, who are the very poor, they're a lot more left-leaning, and quite often they're quite radical. Like, you see a lot of homeless people, that they agree with communism, especially because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, communism is when everyone's equal. And like, well, that's not really true. To a homeless person, that sounds great. They're like, and they see us helping the poor people, and they're like, yeah, you know, this sounds good. You also do, like, get a bit more conservative views, especially within the homeless community. You've got to wait to get a house, and, like, there's refugees getting houses. and So they do have some legitimate grievances, but, like, it turns into racism pretty quickly. Especially when a fair bit of the homeless population, like, rough sleepers and stuff, they're, they're quite older. Uh, within general, like, poverty, not, not quite poverty, but, like, low-income people, I think it's very common for them to be anti-capitalist because it's kind of like a... Um, it's kind of like a working class consciousness. It's pretty logical to think that anyone within the capitalist system doesn't like it because it really doesn't work for them. Within them leaning towards like left-leaning or socialist politics, I think that's a bit more give or take. I, I think it, it does definitely influence them because if you grew up in poverty, you're going to want to solve those issues. Yeah, so I would agree with that too. How does uh, this operation differ from the Dandenong one in your views? Here we get quite a few regular homeless people or people in commission housing that come here and access food. But with COVID, they were all put in hotels. I hadn't seen like a homeless person in Dandenong. Last Thursday, we were out in Dandenong at night time and I saw maybe like 30 homeless people. But then when we did the street kitchen 
from three to six yesterday. I, I went out looking for them and I didn't see anyone. I saw like their sleeping stuff in the car parks and that. Maybe because it's a bit of a harsher neighbourhood. Maybe they go somewhere during the day. I'm not sure. Aside from that, the Dandenong one is a lot more socially engaging because there's a lot of people from ethnic backgrounds and they'll come there with their mates. There's like a lot of like Greek guys that hang out together and some Eastern European people. I wouldn't say it's too much friendlier because this one's also very friendly. But you get people that come there, stay for the whole time. They just want coffee after coffee after coffee and it, it's really chill. Any interesting memories? So, as you know, like the council doesn't really like us. I can't remember when I first tried to apply for a permit. It's kind of like feeling through if we need one. Because we were at Carlton Gardens originally, and like I asked them and they kind of like said no, because it's a culturally, it's a heritage listed place. But then like that fell through and we decided to move here. And there's been heaps more people here, which is good. But yeah, um, at the start of lockdown, the police, I don't know if you know what they were like at the start of lockdown, but they were everywhere. They'd go in like groups of like nine, and just intimidate. So we'd sometimes walk from here to Selvos because there's lots of homeless people there. And you'd see maybe like three or four groups of just nine police officers. They were very intimidating. They didn't have masks on or gloves. Oh, maybe they had masks. They, they definitely didn't have gloves and they weren't like COVID safe really. But they'd go and hassle everyone. They'd come to the street kitchen here and they would tell people to leave and like, because you, you, know, you can't sit down and eat or something. And they'd tell the homeless people to like, go home and they'd be like, I don't have a home and they'd be like, you just have to leave. We obviously didn't accept that from the police and we argued with them a fair bit. And eventually they stopped doing that pretty much the first day they started. They still gave us trouble but they stopped hassling the homeless people here. One time they came and they tried to like get us to move and then they talked to their sergeant who also did. They sent the council down and the council was like, we can't do anything. Because we're not on the footpath and I think like legally they can because we put the gazebos up but we can take them down. But, so they just let us be here and they hassle us um, but not much here and not much the homeless people but I have heard from the homeless people like at the train stations coming here that they've been fined on their way and that's very unfortunate. There's nothing we can do about that. So my attention is mostly on the moratorium on evictions and then secondly on the um, cuts to job seeker and welfare because that's it's going to continue and especially if they're trying to roll out like the cards the cashless cards they're pretty bad also i think climate change is pretty important i mean i would like to see the movement become more like politicized and i think quite a few people in the climate change movement want that too because it, it seems to be very like green capitalist you know people that kind of research and like understand that's not going to work if there like was ever a scenario where green capitalism could work it would have to have been started like 20 years ago but it's kind of too late for that now yeah and it's not very effective
Hello, we're the Community Union Defence League. And we're a community organisation stepping up to support our communities and serve the people in building community power. We currently run two street kitchens in Dandenong and the CBD, where we provide food, clothes and essential items to the homeless. We're open to everyone and entirely community run, so if you're interested in donating, volunteering or just coming down for a chat, please check out our website at cudl.org.au or find us on social media. A 3CR supporter. Yeah, you're back on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Jordan. And on the line, we've got Nazim Aranj. G'day, Nazim. How are you? Hey, Nazim. Hi, Annie. Hi, Jordan. Now, thanks you're... for having me. Yeah, no thanks, stress. No thanks stress. for talking to us. You're the CEO of the Community Legal Centres Australia, and there was this absolutely uh, frightening um, development, uh, another cost cutting measure according to Christian Porter, the merging of the family court into the general hoi polloi of the legal system. Uh, can you tell our listeners what how this has come about? Yeah, so look, this has been... Um, the Attorney-General um, uh, raised that he wanted to do this about three years ago. And over the last three years, um, we've seen um, two different bills be developed, um, seeking to merge the Family Court with the Federal Circuit Court. Um, it's been... It was opposed, basically, um, by all the experts, uh, and particularly um, the Law Council that represents all the lawyers, women's legal services that specialise in family law and family violence, National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander legal services, you know, who work with um, Aboriginal people going through the legal system um, and ourselves and, and community legal centres. We also had judges come out or ex-judges come out um, to oppose the bill, but sadly um, it passed um, the Senate on Thursday night. Yes, sadly. And uh, the family court was... Uh, separated or created because it was considered that uh, the uh, people who were in a situation of litigation when it came to family breakup uh, deserved uh, greater attention uh, and that they, the amount of effort that was required to uh, be able to deal with those kind of uh, issues required, uh, needed to separate them from the general uh, uh, circuit court. It, it, that's, it needed more resources. Yeah, look, so, um, you know, family law is quite different to other types of law. You know, we're not talking about, um, you know, suing someone for money or, you know, a car accident or something like that. We're talking about usually, you know, what's going through the family court. There is property, you know, settlements and divorce, but really the main thing, the main issue that's taking people there is, you know, sorting out custody of their children. So there can't be anything, I guess, more personal um, than that. And it was, you know, recognised the family court was established back in 1976. Like, uh, I won't give away my age, but it's almost as old as I am. Um, and it was it was established because it recognised that family law was a was a special area of law that required a different kind of approach from judges and a different kind of understanding, um, including you know understanding family dynamics. How are you expecting the 
uh, family court to merge with the federal circuit court uh, now that this bill has unfortunately gone through. What does that actually look like in practice? So, um, there's, there's a, look, there's a lot of technicality that might be difficult to explain, um, you know, um, to people not familiar with the court system. But what, what they're, they're looking at creating a division within the Federal Circuit Court that will primarily deal with family law matters. But the same judges that are hearing those matters will also be expected to hear other matters in the um, Federal Circuit Court. So usually in the Federal Circuit Court, like there's, immigra- like there's other types of law. There's immigration law is an, is an example, you know, that's being heard in the court. Um, and then they'll create what they call like an appeal division um, that will look at appeals um, from, from the, 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 like the lower part of the Federal Circuit Court. Now, the thing about it is, is a court... Uh, cases, it would appear, move like snails, like the timeline is incredibly slow. So that's usually because of resourcing, right? Yeah. Um, you know, um, what in a struggle with is it's not their fault that the cases move slowly through the system. There's just not enough judges. There's just not enough resourcing for the whole thing. So there needs to be um, more more money for the for judges, more judges, more family consultants, more people, like more legal assistance, so lawyers helping people go through the system. Um, and all of that resourcing really needs to be adequate um, and in place to kind of ensure that the court functions efficiently. Now, kind of sadly, rather than do that, like rather than address the resourcing of the court, the family court, um, the government, um, you know, with the support of um, Pauline Hanson, Rex Patrick, um, uh, have decided instead, you know, to kind of roll the family court into the federal circuit court, you know, without really addressing actually the resourcing issue. So I think we, we, we think the same problems are going to arise through the federal circuit court that plagued the family court in terms of delays. Now this is horrifying because on one side they the the uh, lip, lip lip flappers in the federal government are constantly talking about how they're really concerned about domestic violence oh, yeah. and uh, yeah. issues of this sort, but uh, and now they they're cutting the resources to the family court. Yeah, I I actually wonder why is the family court such a political football in the first place too. Look, it's, it's hard. Like, I mean, I think you're going to need to ask the attorney um, wh- why um, he's made this decision. I think, like, one of the things that he flagged early on was that it was a cost-saving and that he believed that this would be more efficient. It would lead to better outcomes um, for people. But a lot of the assumptions um, that informed the first bill was based on a report that has been discredited since, like PricewaterhouseCooper did a report around um, the merger of the courts and, and it's been discredited by most of the experts since then. Look, ultimately, really, systems should be designed, you know, um, or, you know, we are, I'm of the view systems should be designed to meet the needs of the people going through them, you know, and... Um, when it comes to family violence, we know that um, 
you know, women and children um, who experience family violence are extremely vulnerable through the court process. They come into, you know, they come into contact again and again, you know, with, with the person. Um, because, of course, you know, it, it, like figures do show that uh, not everybody goes to family court. You know, it's about a third or so are actually that's contentious. That's right. Like, most, like many, many issues can be resolved outside the court. It's the issues that can't be resolved that go to court. And, and usually that's, what, that's why they kind of complicate it as well and take time because usually it's the most entrenched issues, you know, where, where mum and dad really can't agree um, with each other. And then when there's, when there's family violence thrown in, you know, there's really good reason not to agree um, and really good reason to be concerned about the safety and welfare of the children, um, you know, spending time with the violent partner. Um, and that's, that's where the expertise of the family court and its specialisation um, in family dynamics and an understanding of family violence and all the support staff in the court around that is really important. And we're really concerned that none of that infrastructure will be translated across into the Federal Circuit Court. The other thing, uh, maybe I'm going too far, but uh, is this a, a gender-related issue in the sense that uh, the Family Court in some ways rebalanced or rejigged uh, the uh, inherent uh, misogyny in our society? Uh, and uh, this might be a pushback to the old days of... Uh, uh, um, disharming women once again? Look, I, I don't know if I, I could say that. What I can say is, like, we know, like, you know, we know that we still, you know, um, live in a gendered society. We know that vi that violence is gendered. You know, 90... Uh, I won't quote... Don't, mis don't quote me on the statistics, but something like 90% of perpetrators are men, you know. Um, you know, predominantly um, violence is violence against women. So we know that all of that is gendered, and so ideally we would have a court system um, that was specialised to understand and and be able to respond to that. Yeah, thanks very much for talking to us. So, uh, we, this is a very sad day and very sad news. Thanks, Nassim. Thanks, Annie. Thanks, Jordan. This is Hugo Race, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Subscribe now. This is a public service announcement. I'm Peter and I produce half of the episodes of Over the Wall and my buddy Duncan does the rest. We are both very thankful for 3CR's Solidarity Breakfast giving us the opportunity to continue Over the Wall for another year. These weekly segments on issues impacting welfare and low-income workers began on 3CR's Wednesday Brekkie in 2017. RoboDebt issued debt notices to over 170,000 welfare recipients. 
and these debts were generated by automated algorithms that averaged income reporting. Robo-debt was proven to be unlawful in 2020 in the courts. This verdict of unlawful issuing of debt notices to welfare recipients by the federal government came after two Senate inquiries, an ombudsman's inquiry, and finally, the largest legal successful class action in Australian history by Gordon, who represented robo-debt recipients in 2020. Sadly, not all the people who are entitled to receive a robo-debt refund by the government have survived, and we have heard many stories in media and through campaign sites of family and friends of deceased persons who attributed the stress of robo-debt notices to their loved ones' demise. Shockingly real and life-threatening neoliberal policy outcomes. Yet. We continue, listeners, to face these punitive policies on welfare recipients in 2021 onwards. I'll come to that in a moment. For now, let's say Orwell's 1984 gave us all a reference for the fear concept of Big Brother watching us. But what we find going into the third decade of the 21st century is that the government not only observes, rather it data matches its citizens using illegal and untruthful algorithms. The class action lawsuit over its unlawful robo-debt scheme. For Rewind. Yeah, it's... Rewind. You know? This is the system working um, as it was yeah, intended. So... Rewind. Despite you know wrongly I mean? accusing 20% um, of... The... We have a responsibility to the taxpayer um, to make yeah, sure the so... welfare recipients are not over... You know what I mean? Well, the Commonwealth um, has settled a class action lawsuit over its unlawful robo-debt scheme. For the first time, the Prime Minister has apologised for his government's controversial and unlawful um, robo-debt scheme. Yeah, so... Staggeringly, listeners, after robo-debt was proved to be unlawful in 2020, the following article appeared in The Guardian this week, titled, Australian Government Says No to Shuttering Centrelink's compliance after robo-debt inquiry. The article is by Asha Barbashal and it was published on February the 12th and I'll quote the following. The government isn't interested in having an independent review launched into the robo-debt policy design and administration and impact of Centrelink's compliance program. The article continues... The Senate Community Affairs References Committee, in its second interim report, asked the government to completely terminate the program. The government said no. Quote, the government notes that the Australian community expects services to be responsible stewards of taxpayer funds and to ensure people are paid only what they are entitled to. The reply continued by the government, compliance activity is essential to support community trust in the administration of the welfare system. End quote. By listeners, community trust in the administration of the welfare system, that's big talk from a government that was proven in the courts in the biggest class action lawsuit ever to have implemented an unlawful robo-debt scheme. The Guardian article by Asha continues, The government in November 2019 paused the automated data matching element of robo-debt. In its report response, it said income compliance activity will continue. Another key recommendation made by the committee back in September was for an independent review to be immediately initiated into the policy design and administration and impact of Centrelink's compliance program. 
including the specific robo-debt elements. The government does not support this recommendation either, says the article, saying the Ombudsman has conducted multiple investigations into the program already. The Guardian article by Asher continues, The federal government in May 2020 admitted it got around 470,000 debts wrong and in 2020 agreed to settle the class action brought on by the Gordon Legal on behalf of five representative applicants and approximately 400,000 people. The Commonwealth agreed to pay $112 million in compensation. The Commonwealth is also repaying more than $720 million in debts that Gordon Legal said was collected from group members invalidly. The Australian Labor Party and the Australian Greens have called for Royal Commission into robo-debt. What we'll be watching this year in Over the Wall is the fact that the government will not cease using automated algorithms to calculate debts. What we'll be watching this year is that the government will ensure that human oversight occurs before any debt is issued to welfare recipients. That was the major flaw in the system automated algorithms issuing debts with no human oversight to actually check if the facts were correct before issuing very stressful and large debt notices to people. The battle continues over robo-debt this year and we'll be continuing to speak to groups like Not My Debt on the program. Finally, listeners, an outstanding documentary on robo-debt was produced late last year by ABC Radio National's Rear Vision program. The doco was called Centrelink and the Robo-Debt Recovery System, and its focus was, to quote executive producer and presenter Annabelle Quince, was to investigate how and why was the robo-debt system introduced and why it was allowed to continue for almost four years when there were clear signs that robo-debt was illegal and it was causing significant distress to welfare recipients, end quote. Listeners, I recommend that it's a great documentary in that it concisely summarises the processes by government in its implementation of robo-debt, goes into the history of it, while also going on to link robo-debt neoliberal policies with other punitive measures by the federal government, in particular the ongoing cashless welfare card. I'll place the link to that Rear Vision doco on this week's 3CR podcast link for Over the Wall. It's a great way to get your head around all the complexities of robo-debt history in just 30 minutes of listening. We'll be back next week with more Over the Wall on 3CR. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when, well, several weeks that were, like from early in the break, we enjoyed seeing big press of Primo Scuttlebem Morlash son, aka Scummo, displaying his COVID protocol observance by elbowing just about everyone who came within elbow distance while laughing happily, especially elbowing Josh Friday icebergs and other economic gurus. Fun, fun elbowing. And I thought, what a state of the nation. 
for two near-identical parties led by Elbow and Elbow. Well, I suppose summer is a time for pantomime. Back to this week, Scummo and Co said they would nudge companies that make a climate, re climate reduction committal to ensure they are paying more than lip service to climate change if there is such a thing. Given we're only giving lip service, we better make sure someone's treating it seriously, the Minister for Fossils, Angus Tailings, declared. With the Socialist Party having its own troubles sorting out how to address climate change while supporting fossils, one front bencher asked about the internal wrangling responded, when you're a party of ideas, and I thought again, well, yeah, 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 good point, but we're talking about the Socialist Party. After the Myanmar generals declared the election everyone else assessed as fair and untainted was rigged, or certainly that the people had abused the democratic process by getting it wrong, and therefore forcing the generals to re-seize the power and corruption, or sorry, not corruption, business interests, monopolies they'd never relinquished in the first place, they received an urgent call from Florida. I wish I'd thought of that when I was commander-in-chief. Best thought of that ever, ever from a man who also knew an election was rigged despite everybody else except his band of followers declaring it fair and untainted, forcing poor Donald to urge his Brains Trust followers, the odd neo-fascist and general moron, to attack the joint and smash it up peacefully. Best peaceful smashing up ever, ever. With populist Aung San Suu Kyi again under house arrest, the week that was sought a comment from the populist. I kind of know, she kind of knew, how the Ugars felt when I sold them out. Ironically, through the spiritual delights of religious differences, providing the overwhelming majority vote for her party, which landed her back in house arrest and under the jackboots of the corrupt. Following the failed People's Military Coup in Donald Territory, an attack on the very international symbol of democracy, of liberty, freedom and, which all means the freedom of capital, overseen by the Capitol, a Democrat big shot called Shifty moaned, I never thought I'd see that in our capital. Those things are reserved for the capitals around the world. We invade. Perhaps there should be a new phrase in the grammatical lexicon, Trump logic, trample the poor logic applied so assiduously by proud broady boy, as long as he doesn't have to live there, now track parvenu or nouveau riche, Eddie McGuire, you poor, after the damning report that the footy club he had presided over for decades has a history of ingrained racism, which made Eddie so proud. A proud day, he boasted. Donald bleed. He's almost outdone you. Still, when Eddie likened an indigenous champion to a large ape, he apologised and explained he didn't mean what he'd said. And we'd like to think he doesn't mean most things he says, but that's being too hopeful. Yes, he apologised. And when he said a woman's sports journo should be drowned, well, can't remember if he apologised or not for that one. This ad the other night informed us, informed readers, read... Lord Rupert of Wapping Sins, True Blue Aussie trailed him with the big red True Blue Aussie up the top. And I thought, for once, there is truth in advertising. Because readers would have to be informed, well informed, so they can see through the pages of crap. Speaking of rigged elections, an African autocrat, Muscle Demvidi, won yet another to extend his 35-year rule, scotching allegations of cheating, rigging the whole thing, 
allegations based on no stronger ground that his biggest challenger was under house arrest when Muscle then made it clear the military forces stated at his opponent's house were there to protect him for his own security. See, ever thoughtful, ever considerate. Although one minor problem... Muscle then Beanie proudly declared this election was probably the cleanest for ages. That is, the ages in which he has been elected and re-elected, which some might consider a bit of an admission. He'd rigged the lot. Not sure that was his most convincing defence. Speaking of Africa, the consistency of the week award to richer than rich resource and pastoral exploiter, or so, sorry, respected business person, Twitty Mine the Forest whose personal philanthropic fund monitors and denounces modern slavery around the uh, globe, millions of victims, while his resource arm signs new resource contracts with the Republic of Congo and other countries infamous for their levels of slavery. And Twitty assumes the right of resource giants to explore and excavate wherever they wish, landholders having no refusal rights, like when Twitty's forefathers and foremothers took over the huge pastoral estate where he was raised, ignoring the rights of the Indigenous people they displaced. Not that Twitty isn't a great supporter of Indigenous people, except when he wants to destroy the odd sacred site, but only because there's a quid in it. Anyway, Twitty has twice gone to court and won both cases, opposing other resource companies moving onto his land. Consistency. Denounced slavery but signed deals with slave centres, assumed the right to exploit other people's land as long as it's not his own. Well, yes, consistent. He consistently acts in the interests of Twitty, of his own wealth, his own filthy rich. On that, see the usual suspect big retailers have declared they will investigate their supply chains to ensure they are, they are not dealing with modern slavery, which is obviously a rundown from wage slavery, and we know they are sincere in telling us they will review their supply chains, because after all, they've been telling us that for years. On wage slavery, just as the government comes up with a surefire way to create employment, making workers worse off overall, the bloody selfish unions attack this job creation scheme. But as the evil unions hog the limelight, complain, 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 spare a thought for the poor caring employers having to rack their brains to come up with some new ideas to generate employment, job creation, their sole raison d'etre like wiping out penalty rates altogether in retail and hospitality and replacing them with a bit more in the pay packet. A brilliant proposal. And what thanks do they get? The evil unions claim this would constitute a wage cut, as if caring employers would propose something that would make workers worse off. The unions basing their frivolous objection on nothing stronger, well, presumably basing nothing stronger than the deal stitched up between no, no, sorry, agreed between the big retailers and salt, sugar and fat junk food lots and the Shopping the Workers Association, note not union association, waiving penalty rates for a bit extra in the pay packet, which left workers only a few million short in the pocket. So with that precedent, surely bosses wouldn't be proposing something that would make them more profit at the expense of the workers they so care about. Shame, union, shame. Obviously, the Shopping the Workers Association and the caring employers must have made a slight multi-million dollar miscalculation, an easy mistake to make. 
Oh, and the Big Business Profits Council wants another sensible change to the proposed Industrial Relations Bill. The fact that they can be penalised for underpaying workers when the underpayment is inadvertent, and after all, it is always inadvertent. Although we do keep wondering why they never inadvertently overpay workers, but why quibble? With Woolworths trillions facing an $8 million penalty for underpaying workers a mere $400 million, which is big time inadvertent. How could we expect a company to pick up a little windfall like that? Inadvertent windfall, and yes, you guessed it, the bloody evil unions want the penalty rates retained. Our old mate Innes, Innes will cost the workers finally of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group says the evil unions and lazy avaricious workers want to crucify the caring business class, oppose sensible reforms providing flexibility and, well, the same guff we've been hearing for years. Another year, the same crap. Good morning. And isn't it wonderful to have Kevin back? Oh, it's a pleasure. Love you, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Jordan. And on the line, we have Don Sutherland. G'day, Don. How are you? G'day, Annie. How are you? I'm with you. It's great to hear uh, Kevin again. G'day, yeah. Don. Well, we're, we've, got, we've got you back because we wanted to finish our conversation where we left off last week. We never get to uh, chew the uh, cud all the way through, and we were finishing off with corporate greed and corporate welfare. Mm. The corporate bludging. Oh, yes, corporate <laughs> bludging. That's a much yeah. better term. Um, uh, is there such a thing? Uh, well, the short answer is yes, and what's more... You can actually, uh, up to a point, you can actually measure it using some information from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And what uh, what those figures show is that corporate bludging is rampant. And let's talk about what I mean by that. Um, the uh, corporate bludging can be measured by looking at a thing called gross fixed capital formation. Now, that is the number of dollars that employers spend on uh, productive uh, equipment and buildings out of their profits. Okay. And what we are seeing is that over, particularly since the early noughties, there has been a drastic fall in the proportion of profits that is spent on new buildings, new equipment, that is productive materials that are needed that workers then apply their brain and muscle to in order to produce the goods and services that are sold by the employer who owns them, in inverted commas. So what we, what we actually see is that in, um, in the mid-noughties, uh, the private sector was investing about 75% of its profits in uh, new buildings, equipment, and so on. And at the present time, that has fallen to about 50%. So it's been in steady decline and got rather drastic, actually, at the time of the, uh, the economic crisis 2008, 2010. And then, so then it improved a little bit, 
But then the decline really drastically set in after the Liberal government was elected in 2013. How surprising. Mm. So this government has enabled, supervised, assisted, whatever verb you want to use, employers to get away with bludging off the rest of society in the effort to produce the the buildings, the goods and equipment that every modern and developing society needs. So 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 are you saying that uh, basically the economy, the Australian economy is fragile and that the government, you know, it's a little bit like a person who's got uh, uh, bone degeneration um, because it didn't get enough vitamin D? Well, I think the dominant narrative is all about the unemployed being bludgers. The word bludging for the unemployed is not used as widely as it was, but it's got other words. There is other ways in which they talk about it. So, for example, uh, there are farmers who are being whipped up by the Australian Financial Review on behalf of the government and corporations to say that um, uh, unemployed people in the city are too work shy to go and work in the country. Which is such a lie. It's such a lie. They just refuse to pay people the proper amounts and give them proper, Mm. decent uh, conditions. Mm. Yeah, well, that might make a bit of a difference because, you know, that whole question does avoid the extent of wage theft. But then there's also the fact that the labour hire companies only hire, uh, don't hire local people. Yeah. Yes, yes. You don't want to get facts to get in in the way of a good story, you mean? No, but the important point is that uh, all of the talk about the unemployed being bludgers, apart from being unfair and not true, disguises the extent to which corporations have been bludging off the rest of society themselves. And, uh, And then, you know, when these facts are pointed out to them, they trot out all sorts of pathetic excuses that they get away with. So even, it's, it's interesting, I think, that going back about two years ago, first the Reserve Bank Governor started telling employers two things. Firstly, they had to start investing more in new buildings and machinery and equipment. And secondly, if, if their employees ask for a pay rise, then they should say yes. Uh, now, uh, you know, you put 100 employee, employers in a room with uh, the Reserve Bank governor who's asking them to do such things, and every one of them is saying, oh, what a great idea, except not for me. <laughs> 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 they're, all, they're all looking around at everyone else to say, you get on and do that, but not for me. That's not quite where I want to go right now. Um, so, 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 Don, do you think that having a government, a federal government, which is so in... Uh, in bed with business uh, and, as you say, abetting their bludgery uh, is... I love that word, bludgery. <laughs> bludgery, that um, in actual fact, the future of the Australian economy would be, what is it, uh, Paul Keating's Banana Republic or something? Well, um, I think, yeah, that's an interesting comparison. I need to think about that, but the... Uh, the, the, one of the most important measures of 
uh, capitalism on its own terms, so a capitalist society on its own terms, is the, its ability to reproduce itself. Uh, what we see with this number, this collapse in, the, in, in gross fixed capital formation, which is the technical word for new productive investment by corporations themselves or by employers themselves, uh, what we see from that is that they're not doing that themselves. And therefore, what they do is they expect that the government will pick up the slack and out of taxation revenue will pay a bigger proportion to create new uh, the new or the new buildings, machinery, and equipment out of the taxpayers' purse. Well, you know what? Forgive me for saying this, but uh, that's an expensive set of middle people that we don't need. I mean, we could have socialism here. Well, there's a sense. There's a sense in which in any any stage of any transition to a more democratic socialist society the government would have a bigger role in controlling investment decision-making and it would have a bigger role in enabling working people through their communities and in the workplace and industries themselves to have greater and even dominant control over investment decisions. Now, that's really important from the point of view of a, a democratic and just transition to a greener economy. You see, if you've got private corporations bludging when it comes to the investment decision of the rest of society, that means that there is a big impact on the amount of investment capital that's available to create the new greening technological capacity. So this situation of uncriticised, accepted, defended corporate bludging is a really serious problem and is far more serious than what is going on with what has been called unemployed bludging. In fact, as we know, unfair and untrue. So we come then to, we come then to uh, the situation that we have at the moment where uh, this appalling record on the part of corporate Australia is contrasted with, and therefore, what is it that enables profits to... Because there's not a problem with profits. Total profits, gross operating surplus, is going up. And the rate of... So the problem that employers encounter that saves them from having to invest is to increase the rate of exploitation. And that is exactly what's going on. So the... The, the bludging when it comes to investment in productive necessity, machinery and equipment and buildings, is subsidised by increasing the rate of exploitation. That is, making uh, workers work uh, harder and more intensely uh, for uh, relative to the profit that's produced. Yeah, Don, one, one thing I was going to jump in on uh, on you uh, about that. Um, in regards to productivity, do you actually see more relevance in a shift in productivity change at the uh, working class level, or is it actually construed through entities more in Australia? Um, that, that measurement of productivity, because, I mean, 
Australians are a relatively productive workforce overall. You know, we, we, we have limited Absolutely. narcotics Labor sales. Yeah, it, it, there's lots Labor of factors to it. productivity is not a problem. Yeah, okay. The, problem with, the issue with productivity in Australia is starts and finishes with corporate control over the decision-making of investment. And my suspect, yeah, absolutely. And okay. particularly, particularly in the enormous problem of being able to transition to a more democratic and greener economy, particularly. Now, yes, and uh, I should just jump in here that it was just announced that uh, it is expected that the world will have an increase in temperature by three degrees the end of the... By, by the end of this century. Three degrees. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, uh, dear listeners, please take a deep breath when you hear the odd story here and now about how wonderful corporate Australia is in creating industry of the future. There are odd examples here and there that are true, but they are the guff that hides the criminal failure, really, of corporate Australia to take to, to actually take seriously the whole question of um, investment in uh, machinery and equipment. And that gets reinforced in all sorts of ways and takes us back to the situation that is faced by people who are unemployed and underemployed. The government is currently weighing up what it can get away with in terms of how much to increase the unemployment benefit, the, the, the permanent job seeker rate. The big, currently, the trajectory is March 31, $40 a day, the old new start rate. They are talking about an increase. But I notice that the Australian Council of Social Services is now starting to warn everyone that any increase will absorb some of the other smaller supplementary payments that go to people who are unemployed and other welfare beneficiaries. So, in other words, not a real increase in what's available. So, so it's exactly the same as all of these the policies from this federal Liberal government, Liberal National Party government. They constantly say, you know, it's like with the ABC, there are, have been no cuts to the ABC, he says, says fat boy. But in actual fact, it's a complete lie. Yeah, it's a, it's a lie. It's a lie. And it's, it's always done in a very clever way. Now, that's what ACOS are warning us about, that there will be an increase, perhaps 45 48 or maybe $50 a week. But that will include um, uh, and will absorb some of the small allowances that unemployed people can claim uh, to supplement uh, their unemployment benefit. Not all unemployed people can claim them, mm. but that will that will mean that that those allowances would probably then not be available. They would be removed. Yep. Now, now, let's imagine. I mean, the, the rest of the ACOS story is not so good because they're already bargaining down what should be the uh, the level of the unemployment benefit, which should be at around $80 a day. So what you, you, you're saying is that they're kind of like the SDA of the social service sector? Oh, far be it from me to draw such a comparison. 
but the 60, they're, they're happy with 65 bucks a day, which is nowhere near enough. Mm. And we need to think about this really carefully and take it back to this question of corporate investment. The corporate, the corporate investment thing is entirely focused upon hoarding of hoarding of, of profits or segments of profits, and it's all about share trading and offshore investments and all of that sort of thing. And as as I've pointed out, not in productive investment. The uh, the other part of that, of course, is in new skills formation. Now, blind credit plus Amazon, a new Amazon report, can point out that there is going to be a desperate need for tens of thousands of currently unemployed people to be able to acquire digital skills that can be used in a in productive industry. That's really essential, including in a green, greening economy. Now, there is no sign that corporate Australia is willing to make that investment. But how can someone who is living on 50 or $55 a day or 60 or even 65 afford in the current system to be able to go and look, gather the digital skills which are actually needed for the next five to ten years. So, so are you Dead. saying that uh, mm. the neoliberal outsourcing uh, party has now cut right to the absolute bone now and uh, that uh, the corporate bludging has reached its peak and the poverty of the general population has reached its nadir or have we got worse to expect the current intention is to create more poverty. Where Morrison wants to go is towards an austerity budget a la 2014. Uh, but he does not want to deliver it in the disastrous manner in which it was delivered back then because it created an immediate backlash. So he's trying to do it and would like to do it in a very different way, in a sense, grip-fed. Uh, and so, you know, if he increases the unemployment benefit to, say, 50 bucks a day with absorption of those other uh, supplementary uh, uh, monies that can be uh, applied for, then he, that will that will actually be an element in an austerity budget that will be separated from the budget. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So it makes so he it... Wants yeah. budget, he so wants... He's found in the way with what he's doing, there is... Uh, there will be... He will drive more people into poverty. Yeah, yeah. So, and... and that's by the way, is what the changes to the Fair Work Act are all about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And because it is this desperate thing. It is a desperate thing to solve their problems by increasing the rate of exploitation of the workforce and of the society as a whole. Which I guess, I mean, we're coming to the end now, but uh, this get, uh, enters well, my. Uh, what were you going to say? Well, I, I just think if we're getting to the end, it's what we do about it. Yeah. Now, cool. I do want to I do want to say that the one of the organisations I've mixed up with is the Living Income for Everyone campaign, and uh, we are joining together with GetUp and with uh, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and other organisations that are joining in the wonderful Council for the Single Mother and Her Child and No Cashless Welfare Debit Card. All some unions also becoming involved. 
for a week of action from the 15th to the 19th of March, in which there will be a different focus point for action from Monday through to Friday. And lots more information will be coming out from the Life Campaign Facebook page and other sources, including, of course, also from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union itself and also from um, uh, GetUp. And it will start with uh, a day of digital action, uh, which can be in the form of pester or poly or provide, putting heat upon um, uh, the punitive private corporations who police uh, welfare provision on behalf of the government and make a profit out of it um, uh, on the Monday. And then on the Tuesday, there's focuses on Parliament House with both a rally maybe and also lobbying of politicians. Uh, and then Wednesday, it shifts to a different focus again. Um, and uh, on Friday, we are hoping to be able to have uh, either a physical rally and march in Melbourne, uh, and if not, if that is not possible, a national public meeting uh, using um, Zoom technology. So um, all of the details becoming available over the next three or four days, and uh, hopefully your listeners will find a way uh, to join in mm. so that we build a real challenge against the corporate bludging agenda that this government supports. Thank you very much for talking to us today, Don. Thank you so much, Don. Lovely to, lovely to uh, be here and look forward to another catch-up soon. See ya. And that is coming to the end of Solidarity Breakfast today. Yeah, uh, another one for the week. Yeah, just to remind you that uh, the delayed refugee rally that was supposed to happen before the lockdown is on today, Saturday, mm-hmm. in front of the uh, library, State Library. starts at 12 o'clock, so it's a bit earlier than they said for the previous one. Uh, so that's that's a piece of news. Uh, the Extinction Rebellion people are running a week of action. So go to uh, your uh, their web page and you will find out more about that. Yep, absolutely. And um, look, just closing out for today as well. Um, obviously, we are still going for you know the subscriber drive. If you deeply care about what we're doing here at Three CR, be it Solidarity Breakfast, be it the week that was, be it Stick Together, anything at all. Put your money where your mouth is, get it out of the Australian economy and get it to organisations that are actually seeking for real change. We do this, you know, as often as we can. We don't always get paid for it. It's very, very rare. I mean, come on, it it almost never happens. Let's be real. But we do it for the love of it. And, you know, how how many people out there right now are doing things simply because they love it and not just because it's how they pay bills? Um, put, your, put your money where your mouth is, really. So I'm here at the school kids strike for climate action with some of the people who are on strike today. Can you tell us your names and how old you are? Uh, so my name's Ivy and I'm 12 years old. My name is Marta and I'm 8 years old. My name's Layla and I'm 11 years old. Inequality is at a 70 year high. Our jobs are going offshore, our jobs are being casualised. 40% of us are trapped in insecure work. The richest 1% have more than the 70% of us at the bottom. And workers will stand up and fight. You've never seen a fight before until you back the Australian workers into a corner and tell them they've got no rights. Those workers will fight. 3CR, union issues and workers' struggles. 
feed Radical Radio, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.